I had come to hate her, you see. I had come to wish her dead, and that was what held me back. I believe that there is another man inside of every man, a stranger, a conniving man. And I believe that by March of 1922, when the Hemingford County skies were white and every field was a snow-scrimmed mudsuck, the conniving man inside Farmer Wilfred James had already passed judgment on my wife and decided her fate. It was justice of the black-cap variety, too. The Bible says that an ungrateful child is like a serpent's tooth, but a nagging and ungrateful wife is ever so much sharper than that. I am not a monster. I tried to save her from the conniving man. I told her that if we could not agree, she should go to her mother's in Lincoln, which is sixty miles west, a good distance for a separation which is not quite a divorce yet signifies a dissolving of the marital corporation. And leave you my father's land, I suppose, she asked, and tossed her head. How I had come to hate that pert head toss, so like that of an ill-trained pony, and the little sniff which always accompanied it. That will never happen, Wilf. I told her that I would buy the land from her, if she insisted, It would have to be over a period of time, eight years, perhaps ten, but I would pay her every cent. A little money coming in is worse than none, she replied, with another sniff and head toss. This is something every woman knows. The Farrington Company will pay all at once, and their idea of top dollar is apt to be far more generous than yours. And I will never live in Lincoln. Tis not a city but only a village with more churches than houses. Do you see my situation? Do you not understand the spot she put me in? Can I not count on at least a little of your sympathy? No? Then hear this. In early April of that year, eight years to this very day for all I know, She came to me all bright and shining. She had spent most of the day at the beauty salon in McCook, and her hair hung around her cheeks in fat curls that reminded me of the toilet rolls one finds in hotels and inns. She said she'd had an idea. It was that we should sell the hundred acres and the farm to the Farrington Combine. She believed they would buy it all just to get her father's piece, which was near the railway line and she was probably right. Then, said this saucy vixen, we can split the money, divorce, and start new lives apart from each other. We both know that's what you want. As if she didn't. Ah, I said, as if giving the idea serious consideration. And with which of us does the boy go? Me? Of course, she said, wide-eyed. A boy of fourteen needs to be with his mother. I began to work on Henry that very day, telling him his mother's latest plan. We were sitting in the haymow. I wore my saddest face and spoke in my saddest voice, 
painting a picture of what his life would be like if his mother was allowed to carry through with this plan. How he would have neither farm nor father. How he would find himself in a much bigger school. All his friends, most since babyhood, left behind. How, once in that new school, he would have to fight for a place among strangers who would laugh at him and call him a country bumpkin. On the other hand, I said, if we could hold on to all the acreage, I was convinced we could pay off our note at the bank by 1925 and live happily, debt-free, breathing sweet air, instead of watching pig guts float down our previously clear stream from sunup to sundown. Now what is it you want? I asked, after drawing this picture in as much detail as I could manage. To stay here with you, Papa, he said. Tears were streaming down his cheeks. Why does she have to be such a...